Welcome to season two of An Unexpected Launch, a podcast sharing stories of people thriving after an unexpected circumstance. I'm continually amazed by the stories of those who don't give up, who use a challenging life event to propel them forward, those who find unexpected gifts of beauty and grace along their journey, those who use these gifts to change the world around them. Born Martha Sue in a small town at the base of the Allegheny Mountains, Murph grew up in a family defined by strict and traditional gender roles. As a child, Murph didn't think about gender until meeting the softball coach, Big Al. She awoke an awareness in Murph, although unable to articulate why, Murph wanted to be just like Big Al. At the age of 18, Murph left the small town behind and headed to New York in pursuit of becoming a medic in the army. After passing all tests, Murph was pulled into the psychologist's office where concerns were voiced. They thought Murph was a man trying to pass as a woman. Needless to say, the Army did not accept Murph. Feeling unwelcome everywhere, Murph discovered the gay bars, alcohol, and a sense of comfort and belonging. After struggling with alcohol and being taken by friends to the ER, Murph embarked upon a journey to sobriety and recovery. Murph spent five years on welfare and volunteered at a legal nonprofit where an attorney encouraged Murph to consider law school. Murph went on to become an award-winning attorney and is now urging us to examine and challenge our gender roles. Murph, welcome to an unexpected launch. Thank you. So Murph, tell us about growing up in a small town in the Appalachians and a little bit about your family. Sure. Uh, I grew up in Hinsdale, New York. My first school was a K-12 school. It's still a K-12 school. And then in the third grade, we moved to the big city of Salamanca, New York, which I think now the population is around five to 7,000. It's been ranked as one of the poorest cities in New York State. And I love growing up there. Uh, it's a beautiful place. There's a state park there, the river and creeks and creeks that we would swim in and jump in and just beautiful outdoor space. and wonderful people. My family life was somewhat difficult and it was a just an incredible place to grow up. So growing up in a conservative area and a traditional family, gender wasn't a topic of conversation. You yourself growing up lacked the vocabulary to identify how and what you were feeling. Your sixth grade graduation was a pivotal moment in your awakening. Can you describe the outfit that your mom made for you? My mom made a yellow gingham dress by hand. She picked out the fabric and the pattern. I can still see the cover of the pattern. I think it was a McCall's. And she had a sewing machine. And at that time, she made a lot of our clothes because we didn't have a whole lot of income to buy new clothes. And so this was a big deal to make this special dress. So, how did you feel about the outfit? I hated it. I just hated it. I didn't want it, and I just, there wasn't anything about it that I liked. Mm -hmm. So, really it was, it was more than, than the clothing. It was more than that yellow dress. It was, it was how that dress made you feel. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I had never been forced to wear dresses before. I'd always just been able to do what I wanted. And for some reason, my mom was holding down the law there that I had to wear this dress and I just didn't understand it. I'd always wear cutoffs or 
hand-me-downs from my brother or clothes from St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, I had a, a football jersey that I like to wear, a uh, big Buffalo Bills fan, and it just felt wrong. That dress just felt wrong. And it wasn't just the color yellow. I'm like, I hated yellow, but my mother had decided that was my color for whatever reason. So did you have anybody to, to talk with about what you were feeling? No, I tried to explain to my mom and she was adamant that this is how it was going to be. Uh, no, there wasn't anyone and no one really talked about it. It was just understood that this is what you were supposed to do and how you were supposed to behave if you were a boy or if you were a girl. And there were some, at least in that community room, like I was allowed to fish and shoot guns and no one thought anything of it because a lot of people were farmers and women worked in factories and everybody sort of pulled their weight. So I think there was a little more room for being different up until a certain point. So when I was 12, it felt like it was all over and somehow all of a sudden I needed to conform and I, I didn't really understand it what was happening so what would it have felt like for you to have a trusted confidant with whom you could safely explore your feelings yeah I think it would have been terrific if I if there was someone I could have talked to about and said this just feels wrong I don't know what's happening I don't know why my mom is making me do this it seems like she doesn't uh like this that I don't want to wear dresses that it's problematic and I don't understand why or what's wrong with me and I felt like there was something wrong with me all of a sudden that I, I, I should like this dress or I shouldn't want to put on makeup or I should want to do all these things and I just didn't want to do any of those things. Mm -hmm. Well and I think as you alluded to earlier you lacked just the vocabulary and if, if people aren't talking about it, then how do you explore that when you do feel different and you think that there's something wrong with you? How, how are you able to explore that? Yeah, I didn't have the language. The only language I knew was tomboy. And tomboys can't grow up and be uh, tom men. I mean, there was just no language for an adolescent. You were supposed to outgrow that phase. And that was sort of the only language that I had uh, was tomboy. So fast forward a little bit, after graduating high school, you decide to leave your town and you have dreams of becoming an army medic. And you didn't get into the army because of perceptions of your gender. So you were pulled into the psychologist's office and asked really personal questions about shaving your legs, your underarms, and wearing dresses. Questions that were probing at and questioning your gender. What did you feel like in that moment, sitting in that office, being asked those questions? I felt like I was in another world. I didn't understand what was happening, and it was bizarre, and I couldn't make sense of it. And I tried to ask, what's happening? Why are you asking me these questions? And they said they're just trying to find out more about me. And it didn't make, it didn't make, it didn't make any sense. It felt horrible. It felt really uncomfortable and, like, why? Am I being singled out? Again, I felt like, is there something wrong with me? I'm doing something wrong. I've made some kind of mistake. It's somehow my fault. So with, with life experience, you have the gift of perspective. What advice would you give to someone who finds themselves in a similar situation? 
I would say to talk about it and that you have choices and you can continue to ask questions about what is happening in that moment. And I think at that time, I didn't know that I had power. I didn't know that the person was treating me inappropriately. I just didn't know. I thought that I was not conforming and somehow I was the mistake and I was wrong rather than the person asking those questions was asking uh, inappropriate questions. I'm so appreciative of you talking with me today because I think that when you feel that there's something wrong with you and you feel alone, you're afraid to open your mouth. You're afraid to ask those questions. And so I'm so appreciative of you sharing your perspective because what you are saying is going to resonate with somebody and it's going to awaken in somebody the realization that they have that power that you didn't know that you had at the time. So I'm curious, this was some time ago, do you believe with the passing of time, awareness of and sensitivity to pronouns and evolving terminology around gender that individuals today suffer the same discrimination that you did? I think that it does happen. I think that for me it's less. I'm less afraid of physical violence than I used to be, but it still happens just, a, I think a month ago, I was at a grocery store and wanted to use the restroom, and so I asked for the code, and I decided I would use the women's restroom, because generally it smells better, and it's easier for me because that's what's on my identification. And so I feel like I'm less likely to encounter problems or violence if I use the one that matches me. And so they said, no, I can't have that code that I had to use the men's room. And I said, well, why? And they're like, men have to use the men's room. And he wouldn't give me the code. And there was another person using the code and he's like, use that one. And he sort of blocked me from the women's room with his body. and. Uh, I said, you have to use that one. So I went in and used the, used the men's room, and uh, I did it. And then I felt horrible afterwards because I realized that I should have a choice of which restroom I want to use, and it's not hurting anyone. And so I think those things still regularly happen to people, and it's a matter of education. I did something that happens all the time, and this time I decided I contacted the... Seattle Office of Civil Rights. I haven't done anything yet, they emailed me back. But I think that's different is that now there's a remedy. There's a place to go to uh, when this happens. There's some laws in place where there weren't laws in place uh, 30 years ago. And so I think that that's really exciting. And I think there's so much less shame about it. There's language I can talk to people and say what happened. And rather than people sort of mumbling and not being sure what to do, they are outraged that that happened. And so I think that there has been a ton of progress. And I have to say, when I did the podcast, or the, excuse me, when I did the TEDx talk, I was nervous to post it on Facebook. So I waited a while and I thought about it. I thought, what will people think, especially the people that I grew up with in my hometown? And I posted it. And I have to say, the people that I went to high school with were the most supportive. I got the most comments of even my friends today. They were just incredible and wonderfully uh, supportive. And so that just really, I mean, that, that moment of taking that risk and putting it out there just showed me that no matter our political differences or our thought differences, that we really can connect with each other. And it just does give me so much hope. So I, I do think that it has changed a lot. So in addition to education and having some laws in place, 
what other things do you think could help move the conversation along, particularly with people like this individual who you had this encounter with the bathroom? I think that it's really for each person to think about what unconsciously do we think do we think is true and correct that might not be true and correct for everyone and really analyzing when and how we think that whether it's about race for folks who are white whether it's about gender for people whose gender expression uh, match the thing on their light on their uh, driver's license or birth certificate just really uh, think about that and think about why Either we want it to remain the same, if we're nervous about change, why is that? What is it, or what benefit do we get out of, of that? And listen to folks' experience, because I really think that when we connect on a personal level, it's, it's harder to be hateful or it's harder just to discriminate because we care about folks who are different from us or our experiences, and to realize what power we have, whether it's a... Um, who gets to use what bathroom or who gets what job uh, to own our own power and realize the impact that we can have on other people for good or for ill, I think is really important. So feeling that people like you, and, and this was what you described in your TED Talk as butch or genderqueer, weren't welcome most places, you, you turned to finding comfort in gay bars and alcohol. And that began a pretty dark period for you. Can you share a little bit about that time? Yeah, I mean, I found a, a community of people who were like me, where I was accepted. And I didn't know that there were any other places to go except for the bars. Like that was kind of, that was kind of it. That's where I went as a queer person uh, to be social. And that's where my friends went to be social at that time in the, mid 80s and the late 80s I didn't know of very many other places uh, except maybe softball or a softball team but there was also a lot of drinking associated with that and and I think there was uh, joy and community um, and safety and numbers there was also AIDS happening at that time and there was just so much hate out in the world and violence and there weren't a lot of safe spaces and there weren't a lot of people uh, stepping up as allies at that time. It, uh, it felt like a really dark time and drinking eased some of that pain and some of that discomfort and brought uh, some camaraderie together. Unfortunately for me, uh, I was alcoholic like my dad and like many people in my family and so it took me down a much darker path than other folks who drank in the bars uh, and found solace there. But I think the gay bars will always hold a very special place for me uh, because uh, that was an oasis. And so when that shooting happened in Florida, uh, that violated that sanctuary of, the, of bars really being a, a social and, and safe haven. Yeah, I'm really glad I'm not, um, that I'm sober and not drinking and never have to sort of face that, that uh, those challenges or that, those difficulties anymore. So you ended up, your friends take you to the ER because you're, you're trying to quit, you're trying to, to abstain, but you're experiencing withdrawal, and you decide that you're going to 
be sober and seek recovery. So what gave you the strength to, uh, to along that journey of recovery? Yeah, I don't think it was about strength at all. I was kind of a mess. <laughs> And uh, a complete mess. Like I was, I was just seriously in trouble, and my thinking was all off. I wasn't making any sense. And what it was is that there was a safety net for me. That there were people to pick me up. There was a system in place in New York that uh, took care of me. That I wasn't criminalized. I wasn't locked in jail. I wasn't locked in prison. I think. Also, too, because I was white, there were services available, I was less criminalized than if I had been a person of color. And so I really think that the system worked for me and I was able to get the treatment that I needed and didn't end up somewhere where I would have been in more trouble or had more problems if I had been ended up in jail for some of the behavior that I was engaging in. But I didn't, I got put in a system and then they picked me up and put me into uh, another system, and then another system, and then another system, and I got the help that I needed, that I desperately needed, and New York State paid for it. They made an investment in me as a person uh, to help me get better, and I think that, that that's what saved me. It didn't really have anything to do with my personal will or being a good person. It really had to do with uh, other people and the system. Well, and how lucky that you had those services, because as you allude to, not everybody is given access to those services for various reasons. And I think that just your journey underscores the importance of having those safety nets Mm -hmm. and those systems in place, rather than discarding people or thinking that, well, they're not going to amount to anything, they're not valuable. When I think of what you've gone on to do and what you're doing now, it's an incredible and and it's such a reminder to never give up on people that we go through these dark periods but never give up because you never know the the incredible potential right. of of what is behind people yeah i was that annoying public drunk person with puke on my shirt who nobody wanted to be around i was the person that showed up uh, at a restaurant or at a bar and people were like oh no not that person And to think about what does it feel like when nobody wants to see you, when nobody wants you to show up, and how as a community can we really embrace folks? Because we aren't, as Brian Stevenson says, we aren't our worst act. We aren't just the person with puke on our shirts. We aren't just the person laying drunk in the street. We're much more than that. You know, it's interesting, just as we're sitting in downtown Seattle where homelessness is is such a problem, and I attended an art exhibition of an incredible photographer who displayed photos of homeless individuals on the side of a building and interspersed were statistics about homelessness. And what, what I walked away from that was with was his comment that these are individuals who just want to be seen. And I think it becomes easy for us as we're busy, we're walking to our building, we're walking to our job, not to see these individuals, but that's really what they want. These are, these are people um, who you never know what incredible potential they may have. And um, I used to, when I was working down here, I would bring food from home and I would find one person each day to give an apple or a granola bar and just smile at somebody because I felt like this is just somebody who needs to be seen and 
told them to have a nice day. So you you uh, you ultimately end up on welfare. However, you go on to graduate from law school, and I think that most people would feel pretty intimidated to the journey that you that you face. So. Can you tell us a little bit about going from welfare to ultimately graduating from law school, and what do you think gave you the strength to to do that? Yeah, again, I think it was really about relationships, and uh, I haven't mentioned before, but my sister has been integral to all pieces of my journey. She's always been there. Uh, We have very different political philosophies and uh, religious philosophies, and she has always been a catalyst and a support person. So I think that relationship, and I think um, that people believed in me when I didn't believe in myself and were willing to express that. So for example, I was institutionalized in the psychiatric ward, no shoes, no shirt, just um, this suicide prevention smock. I mean, I wasn't suicidal, I didn't think, but I was probably a danger to myself and others, at least the state believed that at the time, and there was a guy that I uh, knew uh, who played volleyball, who was in like a silver volleyball league and worked, was high up in the county, and he came to see me. And he's like, you're gonna do great things. And I'm like, they won't even give me my shoes, Jim. And I couldn't believe that he came, and I thought, what is he thinking? He's like, yeah, I always wanted to be a lawyer or do great things, and you, you are just, Phenomenal, And it was like he didn't see me, the person uh, locked in the psychiatric ward. He saw someone else. And I didn't quite believe it, but it planted just this little seed. And then I think when I was in the welfare-to-work program and happened to get placed at the legal aid agency, and there was an attorney there, Brian Hetherington, who said, have you ever thought about law school? And I said, no, never. Um, that that also planted a seed. And so how, for me, it was people communicating that I was more than what I thought I was. I was more than just a person on welfare and that it was fine to be that person. And if I just wanted to stay there, that was fine too. But I just might want to think about something else. And then there was this older guy, Norm, who um, had sort of taken me under his wing um, to help me and I was cooking in a kitchen for a couple of years and really liked it. And he said, you have a brain in your head, Uh, you might be able to give a little bit more to the world. Uh, Feeding people is a noble profession, but you might be able to give back a little bit more, and so you should think about that. He's also the same one who said when I was in welfare, sooner or later you gotta get a job. And so I think being willing to push folks in a really loving way, and also, we. Not, I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. Other people gave me boots, and then they showed me how to tie the laces. And I think that's really important. I didn't know how to get from point A to point B to point C. I didn't have a lot of those role models. Uh, and so people stepped up to really help me learn how to do that. It's the importance of community and having those people who believe in you when you don't believe in yourself. So you recently gave an eloquent TED Talk that I encourage everybody to listen to, and you described your gender journey, and you really challenged listeners to explore their own gender biases. And you and I spoke, and and you had mentioned that one of the key goals of your presentation 
was just to make one young person feel less afraid. And so as you look back at your 12-year-old, 18-year-old, or 21-year-old self, what would have been comforting for you to hear? That the world is a safe place, that uh, you can be accepted and have a wonderful life, and that it's okay. Uh, who you are is, is okay and just fine, and that there are other, uh, there are other people like you. And I think uh, one really impactful moment for me was when I read Stone Butch Blues, I think by Leslie Feinberg, and I felt uh, that I was understood and there were other people like me. So I think if there had been books or television shows or images of folks like me, which there are uh, more and more that's happening, but that I wasn't a freak and that I wasn't alone. And I love um, that it gets better, that it really does get better and that it can be really hard and that people are so cruel. And not to assume just because we've made humongous progress and we have more of a language that it's not still challenging and difficult to be different. What would you say to the family and friends of someone who's struggling and afraid? I would say that your own fear won't protect you. That you can't use fear to save someone. Uh, it doesn't work and it's not helpful. And to try to find love to really uh, support that person and look at each person to look at our own biases and what we're afraid of and what our concerns are and really think about are we really concerned about that person or are we concerned about ourselves and and what what is it that we're afraid of and what is it that we're angry about and what are our own losses if that person isn't who we expect or want or thought that that person was and how can we just accept that person for who they are and ask a lot of questions if we can and if the person is willing to talk about it and really really listen to the answers and don't assume that it's a phase or that it will change but also be open that it may change and it may be different over time and I do think it's challenging because we um, we live in a world that's highly incredibly gendered where there is still violence where particularly uh, trans women face huge amounts of violence still and all kinds of discrimination and many others in the LGBT and queer communities face uh, those issues. So that fear is real and figuring out how we can be in solidarity with that person. Fear is so divisive and so, so damaging and I think you're right, people are so afraid to face their own fears and look inside. So I think terminology is really evolving. What would you say to somebody who's afraid to have the conversation for fear that they're going to say the wrong thing, use the wrong pronoun, or use the wrong label? Yeah, you know, I think it's the same fear. Uh, white people are being afraid of labeled racist, and people are being afraid of, oh, they're not using the right term that somehow but I really think if it's a genuine attempt at solidarity that it will be well taken at least it's well taken by me if people are really trying hard and genuine if people are just trying to check the box and show that they know the language and so they share their pronoun 
and they haven't been really thoughtful about it, I find that more discomforting than someone who says to me, oh, I use these pronouns. Would, would, are there pronouns that you would like me to use for you? Or to be willing to have a conversation about it or know that it might be complicated for someone. And that it's fine, as I said in the TEDx talk, to be awkward. Like, this is an awkward conversation. We're not, we haven't grown up talking about gender. We haven't grown up talking about race. This new generation is talking about those things. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from this generation who are having these conversations. And it will just be part of what we, what we talk about. Well, and this is another reason I'm so thankful that you agreed to meet me and speak with me. One of my goals is to have uncomfortable conversations. And when it comes to gender or sexuality, those are conversations that can be very uncomfortable. And so I am so appreciative of you being so open because I know, again, this will resonate with somebody else who's feeling uncomfortable or maybe somebody who needs to explore their fear or bias. Um, so as we're thinking about gender, you and I were speaking earlier, um, and I would love for you to share your initial hesitation and then your experience shopping for your TEDx outfit. <laughs> yeah, that was something. So I wanted to get an outfit because I knew it was going to be videoed, and I had an outfit that I wore a lot, and it really wasn't the right one. And so it was the Sunday before the TED Talk, which is on that Tuesday, and I had to work Monday and I had an event Monday night. And so I knew I couldn't do it on Monday and I thought I have to do it. And I thought, how can I make this easy? And I thought, well, I could just take the train downtown and go to Nordstrom's. It's a little pricey, but um, you know, uh, it's convenient and I have to do it, I have to get going. And so my partner was taking our son to a cookie party. And so I had some time and so I did it and I went to Nordstrom's and I kind of wandered around Wasp for about 15 minutes because I don't really have a fashion sense. Like I'm not known for my fashion sense, I would say. I prefer bright neon colors and generally I don't match. <laughs> uh, it's true. Um, I've gotten better, but it's true. Um, uh, my partner uses a, I think it's Pennsylvania Dutch, hoofty for sometimes for the way I dress and I love that word, hoofty. Um, so this uh, man, uh, who later I found out his name was Brian, came over and he said, can I help you? And I said, I'm totally, I just decided to be honest. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm totally lost. And I kind of talked really fast and said, I have to do this TEDx talk thing on Tuesday and I don't know what to wear and I'm trying to find something. And it's videoed and there's rules about checks and plaids and red and all of these things and help. <laughs> and he was so sweet and so kind and I've always had bad experiences shopping like almost every time I don't know if I should use the women's dressing or the men's and it's always difficult and people don't know why I'm in which section and clothes don't fit very well particularly if I'm in the women's section because of how I'm built and men's is kind of too big and uh, and so I just kind of try to avoid shopping at any cost just because it's awkward and he was incredible he was a gift and he talked about uh, what might be helpful, and he's like, we're gonna get this done, and this is gonna be fabulous, and we're gonna make it fun, and he saved me. He helped me find pants and a shirt and a jacket and several jackets, and uh, made me feel like I was welcome there. And I thought, gosh, is this the way that everyone feels when they go shopping? 
Like, is this what, and I thought, a normal person experiences? And, and it made me think about in my day-to-day interactions, you know, how I'm treated or other people who are different um, might be treated. And how people that aren't treated that way might not understand that not everyone has that same experience where they walk into a store and they have the transaction and they leave. That for some people it's much more complicated and much more painful for that. So I am so grateful to Brian. I emailed him. He, he put on a card and he said, please email me the, the video and that it was an honor to work with me. And I, I had never had that experience. And so thank you Nordstrom's, thank you Brian for amazing customer service and make me feel just like a person. So throughout our conversation today, you've, you've talked about things that have been challenging and uncomfortable. What would you say that the most challenging aspect of your gender journey has been? I don't know if it's so much the journey, but bathrooms are the most challenging thing. And for me, shame. Um, being ashamed of being different and trying to conform and having it not work. Like working so hard at that, and it took a really long time just to let go and just be willing to be who I was no matter what. And I think that that was the most challenging part was getting through that, that shame. Either I wasn't uh, a good enough regularly gendered person or I wasn't a good enough trans person or queer person or butch person. Like I had to sort of uh, be some way and I always felt like I was never enough. And I realized that that wasn't so much on other people, but really um, what I needed to work on. And yes, there is a system in place that also told me that I didn't fit in. And so I wanted to change the system and also to uh, work on myself to be really comfortable. And the other challenge is a real fear of violence. When my partner, when we first got together 20 years ago, really thought a lot about where we would go and decided not to go places like Idaho, or when we went to Walt Disney World for the first time, we sent away for a map that showed all the family restrooms because we were concerned about that. And I had an incident, I love Walt Disney World, it's kind of a quirky thing about me because I'm generally sort of uh, not um, kind of like people would be surprised at that. Anyway, so one time a few years ago we went and I went to use the women's restroom because I really had to go and it was close by. And a woman grabbed me by the arm and pulled me out. And that act of violence, like being grabbed in a public place, like that just doesn't happen. Like some sort of code of we don't touch each other and that way it was violated. And being um, physically removed and uh, it was out of the blue. And I think about the fear that people have about trans people using restrooms. And yet, I've only experienced violence by folks trying to prevent me from using the restroom. I haven't experienced um, the other way around. And so I would say that, that being willing to subject myself to the potential for that uh, kind of treatment is challenging. And that sort of unknown of how it's going to go when we make that decision. I would say one of the most exciting points, my son and I were at a Mariners game and we were looking for a restroom. And he's like, look, he calls me Murphy. Look, Murphy, there's a restroom for us. And there was a man, a woman, and then a picture of a person who was a man and half a woman. And then it had a little kid. And we went in there, it was an all gender, and he was so excited. I love and that. it was perfect. And so 
yeah, those kinds of things I think are that didn't have that 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the gifts that have come through your experience navigating the boxes of male, female, and the spaces in between? I would say that I've had the experience of being treated as a man, as a woman, and as an in-between person, and I don't know that many people have enjoyed those kinds of experiences of seeing what it's like to be treated as a man and what it's like to move through the world in that way, and then also to be uh, treated as a woman and move through the world in that way too and have those kinds of connections and relationships and then just the awkwardness of people not knowing or being in the middle and um, wearing men's clothes, wearing women's clothes, um, mostly men's, but just having this, um, the all of these choices. Like nothing is really closed off. In some ways I can cut off all my hair which I just did, or I can grow it long. It really grows out more out than long. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I think that I didn't expect that, but that's been that's been pretty incredible to have just this um, this array. And um, just the other piece I think is that to really learn that people can be incredibly kind. Yes, they can be violent, but most people, the majority of people, are. Uh, really kind and want to do the right thing and so that's been that's been great and the community and family my partner's family my own family uh having these kinds of conversations that we wouldn't have if it weren't for these gender issues what's your greatest hope my greatest hope uh other than living in a world that's peaceful and loving and kind and where all people are treated respectfully. Um, I think that there's a place for everyone that we can really undo racism, that we can undo other forms of oppression, that whatever our social standing is, that we can uncreate the world that we've created, that we can take the constitution which allowed uh, people to be property and which allowed all of these horrific things to happen in our world that we can somehow uh, have transformation, that we can somehow reconcile that, that we can talk about all of that history and that we can hold that. That's the work we're trying to do here and that we can move forward acknowledging the society that we do live in and what it's currently like without pretending that it's not happening. That as people who are white, we can be anti-racist and not just to check the box and not just to do what's easy, but have the really hard conversations, see where we're complicit in these systems. I'm different in some ways because of my gender, because I'm queer, because I grew up poor, grew up in a real rural area, was on welfare, but that doesn't mean that I'm not racist or that I don't have other kinds of oppressions that I perpetuate, that I'm not complicit. And so I guess my greatest hope that we can all recognize where we're complicit and that we can also all be kind with each other as we make mistakes, as we're awkward, that as some people say that we can call each other in rather than call each, calling each other out. I love that. Murph, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like our listeners to know? I don't think so. Just uh, be willing to be awkward 
and have fun. Like even when it's painful, it's been really fun. And I think that's the most important thing is to um, try to find a little bit of joy no matter what. Even when I was getting pulled out I was of the bathroom physically, I was still at Disney World. And so there was still joy in there. And that I guess I would say that we can hold pain and discomfort and shame and joy and excitement and hope at the same time. Well, I have to say that I have so enjoyed our conversation. And when I was listening to your TEDx talk, the feeling, I felt like I had a smile on my face mm -hmm. the whole time because you were speaking from this place of love and joy and kindness. And I felt that here today. And I'm so appreciative of you opening up and, sh and sharing with me. And I've loved our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, and I forgot to say hi, Mom. <laughs> She'll be sad if I don't acknowledge her. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music.